The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 57, Crack. Lucas protested. Jack gave up everything to try and help, Isabel pleaded. He designed a way to keep my brother at bay, but it isn't deception or a lie. It's a program that in Owen's case amplifies the volatility of cryptocurrency and the other markets that he's heavily invested in and introduces uncertainty at random intervals, specifically for him, good fortune and bad. He's a man no longer able to depend on the shine of his coin, that's all. Don't you think that for a man like your brother that's enough? His whole sense of reality is regularly broken, Moot replied. When his fortunes fail, it seems hard, yes, Isabel conceded. Diarmid shot her a warning look, knowing the centuries of knowledge that lay behind Moot's ability to argue. Moot was the universe's most effective devil's advocate because it didn't believe in good or evil but had all the precedents of civilization at its fingertips. Moot could lay out all the arguments and win them from any angle. Jack may have made Owen's life by turns a bit more financially fraught, but I know that by doing that he saved mine, she finished. And by creating a world for Baba Yaga, he gave her a choice that left her with a whole lot more than she would have left anyone here, Lucas cut in. And it was a choice. She didn't have to enter the realm inside the egg. She thought it was a quick getaway back to her time and place, and as she lives day to day in the realm, she won't know her universe is contained within a shell. It's not an empty prison reflecting her captivity back to her like Koshche's soul egg. It's her world made for her. Exactly as I said, Jack built a world intended to deceive. He built a world around a lie, Moot agreed. He built a world around a story, Vasily said. In fact, with Lucas and my help, he built a world around all the old stories that featured and glorified the witch. Her golden dark age, if you will. Not deceit, my friend. Deception at worst, illusion at best. Both things she excelled at and used unashamedly on whomever she chose. Vasily continued patiently. Jack created something to contain the witch and her power. She wasn't diminished or thwarted at all. What you are proposing condemns Jack to eternal exclusion from the place he knows as his true home. Tiring of the high philosophical and moral arguments almost instantly, Koshche said simply, Let him win his way home, or earn it. What are you thinking? Moot asked. Two payments, one for each apparent violation. You set the terms. After the full price has been paid, he gets to go home. Lucas whistled softly in admiration for Maria Morebna's general. 
Koshche didn't stop at ordinary horse trading. He could move Trojan horses full of battle-ready troops and make the whole transaction look like a pony ride. Deal. First he tells a story, something I haven't heard. That's impossible, Diarmid had removed his battered hat in frustration and began kneading the much-abused brim with wringing hands. Not necessarily, uncle. Moot doesn't know all our stories. I can keep it in the family, I think, Jack responded. Oh, lad, I never thought Moot would try and keep you here, not after what you had to learn about your past, though Isabel was right to tell you and as fair in her treatment as the transgression allows. So I'm Thomas the Rhymer, however many times removed, and a few drops of high elven blood still sing in my veins on my mother's side. Is that right? Jack asked softly. More than a few. Your mother is a queen in her own right, his uncle affirmed proudly. I always thought so, Jack smiled. Make it good so we can make it home, the immortal implored Jack. You're worth a thousand of your true namesake and like a son to me. I know, Jack whispered back. Raising his voice to the audience, he said, Moot, give us Angus's bejeweled tower at the four corners of the world for our comfort, but keep the way barred to the eastern sea. Let us hear the bard's harp, buzz gossip, and proclaim hero tales, and I shall give you how the son of the governseer shortened the road. Let there be giants, Vasily breathed. Jack winked. One day, the son of the governor sat making a little reed pipe to play. He had his father's clever fingers, but not so much his clever mind or his passion for honest work. He was so occupied, he didn't see the three rough-looking fellows who had come calling until they blocked out the sunlight he was working by. He looked up into three evil-looking faces and wondered if they had hearts to match. The son of the governor rose slowly to his full height. We have a proposition and a job of work for the son of the governor, the leader said. Our king in the land under wave has something he needs doing that only the son of the ever-living smith could do. I'm his son, came the reply. Then you have the wisdom of the three worlds in your hands, and you must come with us, they cried. I have my uses, the son agreed, but that's more my father you're talking about. Well, then bring him too to the land under wave and your fortune is made, the ill-favored trio promised and hastened away. The son sought out his father and told him of their fortunate employment. Three from the land under wave, you say. Did you get a token of their identity and allegiance to prove who they were? Well, no, but do you not think I can recognize official messengers when I see them? The son asked, more than a little affronted. There's no fooling you, I'm sure, his father replied wryly, and they started off together. They hadn't gone far when the governor said, It's a long way, son. Shorten the road for me. I'm your son, not a magician. I can dig a road, pave it, and rip it up again. But how can I shorten a road for you? It's your own two feet must do it. 
Well, if you can't even do such a simple thing for me, how can you expect me to come on this mighty adventure with you? And his father turned around and stomped off home again. The son of the governor sat down there in the road to puzzle out how to shorten it. After some time, he looked up to see an old man working in a green grassy field. He seemed to be laying out hanks of white wool to dry and his back was bent nearly double in the effort. The son was a kind-hearted lad and though he never went looking either for trouble or labor, he felt he shouldn't let the old man carry on so alone and he got up to help him. The old man straightened up and the young fellow saw that it was Mananuan, god of the sea, and he wasn't working in the field. He was topping waves with sea foam. You came to help me, the sea god said, smiling. Aye, but I hardly think you need it, the son replied. I don't, but the gesture is appreciated. The hand offered in generosity is the one fortune fills the fullest. Reach out and take some foam. It will help you when you need it. The son of the governor bent down to the wool-topped grass and saw green waves crowned with sea foam. Below these, the seas were crystal clear and deeply blue, and below these he saw swaying fields full of red flowers. He scooped up a handful of foam and it became a twist of wool as he stood to thank the lord of the sea. But Mananaman was gone and he was there alone in the wind-blown grassy field. He tucked the wool into his shirt and went home to his wife. He showed her the wool and explained how he came by it. Then he asked, shaking his head, How can I shorten a road for my father so that I can get him to go with me and lend his skill to this work? Everyone knows that if you tell a good story as you go, it shortens the road, his wife said reasonably. She loved her husband, but thought him a bit of a fool now and again. Wife, he cried, you have the way of it. I'll get my father to start off with me again, and I'll tell him a story as we go. The governor agreed to start out with his son again, and soon asked him to shorten the road. His son told a long tale that took them to the water's edge near a place called the White Strand. There they found a rather poorly made boat, with rowers who had the same aspect as the strangers who came to engage the son in this curious employment. I don't believe the king of the land under wave has to borrow Formorian scows or employ them as crew, the governor said dubiously. His son did not answer, feeling slightly ashamed and fearing that he might have been too trusting. One of the strange sailors came forward bearing two cloaks, handing them to the maker of the gods and explaining, If you put these on, you won't think the boat unseaworthy or her crew ignoble, and the journey will pass better for you. The governor took the cloaks and handed one to his son. As they put them on, his son said, See, these magic cloaks are all the tokens we need to know this is a true undertaking. His father raised an eyebrow and said nothing. When they were approaching the shore, the governor removed his cloak and surveyed the dreary-looking port. This isn't the land under wave, he cried. This is the country of Balor Evil Eye, king of the Fomorians. You tricked us. He roared at their captors and threw them overboard. We thought we were working in the land under wave. Go there first and prepare a welcome. 
and the hapless false crew sank under the surface as if invisible hands pulled them down. The other Fomorians wanted to attack the Govanseer and his son, but did not dare because they had to be delivered to Balor fit for work. Balor was a huge, monstrous giant with an eye that could stop the heart and wither life in all it gazed upon. He could melt stone and boil iron with his gaze. When the Govanseer and his son were brought before Balor, he commanded them, I want you to kindle a fire under this pot. In one of his last raids, he stole the Dagda's cauldron of plenty, which could feed all the people of Ireland at once. But Balor in his wickedness could not kindle a fire under it, and so the wonder gained him nothing. Setting a fire is work easy for any scullery maid. Why can't you do it, mighty as you are? The governor scoffed. His son looked on nervously. I want you to do it, Balor roared, for in truth neither had he nor anyone in his court been able to raise even the tiniest flame. The governor and his son put their heads together. The son asked for the wood of nine trees, oak, ash, aspen, pine, blackthorn, hazel, yew, whitethorn, and bog myrtle, while his father asked for a white stone from a poet and a black stone from a seer in order to strike the spark. Now the land of the Fomorians was a marshy wasteland with few trees, and there wasn't a poet or seer to be had. It's hard to get things done in a country such as this, the crafter said, sympathetically to Balor. Tell you what, send your son and your foster son to our bright country to do your shopping and keep us here. For a moment, a shadow crossed the governor's face as his son reminded him that he should send three on the journey, one to keep the way, one to keep the goal, and one to keep the luck of the undertaking. But there wasn't a third to go. When Balor's son and foster son reached the land of the Dedanan, they came to the wife of the governor's son. She was amused by their quest. That's quite a list, she said, but to help my family, I can gather those things for you. But may I see a token to prove your origin and your tale? Balor's son had nothing from his father for the journey, but he showed her a family ring. She recognized it and locked him in the cellar, seven stout locks on the door. She grabbed evil-eyed foster son by one of his spongy ears and frog-marched him back over the threshold. Tell Balor I have his son and that he must send a token from my kin if this business is to proceed. And so she pushed him out on his way. When Balor heard this, he cried, I'll send the seer's son back for mine, but tomorrow once they're gone, I'll kill the wondersmith. His skills have come up short. For tonight, lock them together in my dungeon and put that useless pot in there with them until they think better how to light it. Understandably, the governor was proud of his daughter-in-law for her quick thinking, but distressed at the consequences to come. I should have sent three messengers and kept the luck in the proceeding. But my wife might not have managed so well against three, his son observed. He wished his father would stop keening so. He regretted bringing him badly enough. If only he had a pipe to play. 
He looked in his pockets for the reed he'd been fashioning the day before and found instead the hank of Mananaman's wool. He took the merest whisper of it and blew on the strand of fleece, saying, Let there be light, and the pair could see all around them. Then he took another strand and told the cauldron to shrink that he might wear it home on a bit of wool under his clothes. Then the sun separated the twist in two and said, Give us cloaks of invisibility. And he had two cloaks, the color of the deepest shadows of the sea where all is hidden. They made their escape and the sun had the will give them a light for the road. When they came to the shore, he struck the tide with his cloak and Mananoan's ship Ocean Sweeper came gliding soundlessly towards them to bear them home. When they reached their own bright country, the son embraced his brave wife and they each told their tales. The son took off the tiny cauldron from about his neck and bid it grow to full size, while the wife provided the nine kinds of fuel and the black and white stones for flint that the governor needed to kindle the fire under the pot. Then he announced a feast, inviting all the good folk of Ireland and Balor's son as well, that he might go home to his father and tell of the hospitality he received. And ever after that, the son of the governor had the skill to shorten the road, and his tales were as much prized at his father's feasts as the food from the cauldron of plenty. Jack bowed to applause and cheering. Diar had a tear in his eye. The first forfeit is paid, Moot agreed. What is the second? Jack asked. I want the Decameron. I put the code in the common asset library already, Jack said. Help yourself. I want to be the sole owner. Jack removed the Decameron's code from common usage. No one had found it yet and transferred it exclusively to Moot. The undying lands will welcome you, Moot affirmed. The company hugged Jack in shared relief. One last thing, your swords of light, leave them here. Jack, Lucas, and Isabel took the blades from their inventory. Moot placed them at various archways in the Vale, leading to fairy and other magical lands. The swords appeared to go out. Unlike the silver tokens in your tales, the swords will stay dark if all is well. If they burn like signal beacons, know you are recalled to the defense of any of the realms. The command center is here. Their stories are yours to find and defend. Jack, Lucas, and Isabel bowed, then took a tearful farewell of the old guard. Koschei was going to seek out his beloved Maria, Diarmid would bring Jack to see his mother, and then leave him to re-enter Fairy to seek his birthright among her people. Isabel had defended her thesis to considerable scholarly acclaim, and she had several publication offers. For the moment, though, she would let that chapter of her life close. She and Lucas were going to search for the fairy folk in Scotland and Scandinavia as a first adventure together. Basile would stay at the college for now, but Professor Lyle was advertising for an assistant for a research trip in his final sabbatical year. Traveling the Silk Road in search of evidence of dragons, he said, I quite fancy that. Field kitchens are easy to manage, and Professor Lyle practically takes care of himself. Vasily voiced this last assessment with a certain degree of amazement. 
I hope he finds my dissertation useful in his research, Isabel told the Domovoy. That's what gave him the idea for the trip, Vasily said excitedly. Rosamond decided she had outgrown her cage and would be going with Isabel and her young man to make sure they didn't do anything she wouldn't do, which admittedly left the pair considerable latitude. She planned to weave her way to all the companions by and by to make sure everyone was getting on all right. And so, like silken threads on the wind, their souls wrapped in gossamer, they drifted away. At a place where Middle-earth and Tirnanog bordered each other like never-ending tales, a woman sat outside her tidy little cabin in the morning sunlight, brushing long coppery hair that not so long ago had been shot through with silvery grey. She was singing an old ballad, but she fell silent as her eyes went dark before she had time to scream. Warm hands lifted away from her face, and she turned to look at that which she had ever loved most in all the worlds. Hey, Ma, I'm home, he said. Moot was left alone in the vale with the Decameron. This bit of code was a keeper. Maybe in time, Moot would call together another group of storytellers. The archivist pressed the hotkey several times, remembering the stories told as each card was revealed, and started playing solitaire. Meanwhile, in an eternally burning tree in the vale, as the stories whispered their magic, a stone casket shifted. Inside the casket, a hare flicked its ear. Inside the hare, a duck ruffled a feather. Inside the duck, there was an egg. Inside the egg, there was a world where good often lost out to evil, and the sound of a mortar, pestle, and broom could be heard grinding and swishing its way through the countryside as a little hut on chicken legs danced after it with wild abandon. The egg wobbled. Inside the egg, there appeared a tiny hairline crack. And that brings the Decameron to its end. If you're listening to this now, thank you for being with me throughout the tale. It's been quite the year. The end of the pandemic is hopefully in sight, though this vision is not equal across the world at this moment. Where I live, we have rising vaccination rates and rapidly declining cases. South of the border, since the death of George Floyd, there has been some justice and signs of positive change, though not enough to fully honour the memory and loss of Breonna Taylor and many others. In Canada, Anti-Asian hate crimes have risen sharply since the pandemic began, and recently in Ontario, members of several generations of a Muslim family were deliberately targeted and murdered by someone who decided that a vehicle could be a weapon and a driver's license was a license to kill. Sometimes I think I tell fantastic tales because even the darkest recesses of my imagination cannot rival real life. As an artist and a person, I believe I have to try and leave the world better than when I found it. I hope my year's worth of stories has been entertaining. I tried, even through the medium of fantasy, to draw attention to issues that did not go away during lockdown, 
the plight of immigrants, domestic abuse, and the loneliness and isolation experienced by many. A year on and restrictions largely lifted, I still have what many would consider a very personally restricted life. In fact, other than chats with members of my immediate family, creating the story every week has been my main foray into artful conversation. But I'm still here telling my tales and I gratefully acknowledge the grace of this gift. Recently in Saskatchewan, 751 unmarked graves were discovered on the site of a former residential school. Another 182 unmarked graves were discovered in southeastern British Columbia. Even closer to home in Kamloops, the remains of 215 First Nations children were confirmed in an orchard within the grounds of another institution that operated until almost the turn of the 21st century. As a person a mother, and someone who suffered what might be called casual physical and mental abuse, though no such treatment is ever truly casual, at least not in its lasting effects. As a disabled child from those institutions and adults who were supposed to have had a duty of care over me, in my heart a quote from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar rings true. Pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek, and gentle with these butchers. For me, right now, there are no other words, and all I can do is listen. But the stories of those survivors who can share must be heard, for they are the only ones who can speak down the generations for the silenced innocence. Coming back to this project and at the risk of giving away my secrets, I can reveal that the Decameron is a real card shuffling program designed by my husband who also did the sound effects. I hope you found the soundscapes evocative. I ran the Decameron and told the tales as the cards fell. My only parameters were I wanted a spread that started with Baba Yaga and ended with Jack, who was in some ways the most challenging character to develop. Any inaccuracies or mistakes of pronunciation are entirely my own. Any messing with traditional tales was deliberate, since I see stories as living things, and sometimes I changed endings to allow for new beginnings. Unlike Sir Walter Scott and other venerable dead white male editors, I don't see these changes as canonical improvements, just open possibilities, roads I laid so I could shorten them. As to the origins of the evil eye revealed in the tale of Lijo and the phrase red herring as deriving from the Russian story of Amelia and the Pike, I confess I just shamelessly made that up. If you fell for it, such is the suspension of disbelief and in my defense, I hope you'll agree I didn't let you fall very far. I also apologized for not being able to stick to 10 minutes a week. It soon became clear that I was telling tales each week as well as the larger story of the characters, and I just can't talk that fast. Did I know where I was going every week? I had an idea. But I often changed elements in stories so that I could continue them or weave them into other ones. Did I know how it would end? As Rosamond might say, honey, that's a moot point. I would be remiss if I didn't leave you with some other reading that has given me joy. First, 
Hellboy and Koshche the Deathless walk into a dive on the outskirts of hell. Sound like the start of a bad joke? It's actually a wonderful graphic novel by Mike Mignola, Ben Stenbeck, and Dave Stewart. When is a love triangle not really a triangle? When it's more like an egg whose fragile, complicated shell holds Maria Morevna, Koshche, and a Soviet-era Ivan, as in Catherine M. Valenti's sublime Deathless. And the best portrait of Baba Yaga in modern fiction is still Orson Scott Card's Enchantment, the Russian tale of Sleeping Beauty set between a fictional Dark Ages kingdom in present-day Ukraine and 1990s upstate New York. If you're interested in Thomas the Rhymer, James A. H. Murray, the original editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, wrote the only definitive scholarly work on Thomas of Erfeldoon, published in 1875 and now available in the public domain. Mary Jane Osborne's incisive account of not-first-so-true Thomas in her nine medieval romances of magic forms the basis of Isabel's tale and would give even the wife of Bath a knowing pause. I have yet to read Baba Yaga Laid an Egg by Dubravka Ugrechik, but it's on my list. Originally, I had hoped to introduce an element of audience participation into the stories to let listeners vote on the direction of the tale for the following week. I posted a survey question to see whether having input into the stories was something audiences desired and received no responses over several months, so I carried on the way I thought best. I have plans for the Decameron. I told you nothing of Selkies and gave but a passing nod to Rosalki. The unseely court goes unrepresented. If you want to hear more, please complete my new very brief survey in the link on the page for this episode. I'll leave you where I started us off. The fictional tavern in the text adventure app is called The Starting Glass, a play on the name of the song of disputed Scots-Irish origin, The Parting Glass. In an uncharacteristic fit of possibly sober humility, Robbie Burns was reported to have said of this song that it was nay his, but he wished it was. He improved the lyrics accordingly. My favorite rendition is by Lorena McKennett and starts thus. Of all the money that e'er I spent, I spent it in good company. And all the harm that e'er I've done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Thanks again for listening. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful storied place, the ancestral lands of the Sinemuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.